All right, Pete Giuliano. It is Saturday, the 17th of December, 2016, and that makes this, what's the number, Pete? 192 and Christmas 2. 192 and Christmas 2, yes, indeed. Season's greetings to all of our listeners all around the world. Many are celebrating Christmas. Many of them, nope. We're very, we got a very cosmopolitan audience, Pete. But, yeah. Uh, greetings Absolutely. to everybody who's celebrating, <laughs> and everybody who's not. Hey, it's okay. Um, let's see. No, they're celebrating because we're celebrating. Yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> but but the real celebration that we're we're, we're observing today, and, I, and I'm not sure many of our listeners are uh, fanatical enough to to keep this in this important date in mind, but they should. Yeah. Because N6QW completes an orbit of the Earth tomorrow. Yeah. Yay. Happy birthday, Pete. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> another I, another I, great I, year I, of home brewing. Yeah, you know, I, I got to tell you, and, and it doesn't bother me to, to share how old I am, but I, I was born in 1941, and it was like two weeks after Pearl Harbor, and I just wonder what went through my mother's mind. You know, here, here you are, a newborn in a country at war. <laughs> you know, <laughs> tough times. yeah, tough times. Tough times. Well, happy birthday, Pete. Thank you. And we have a lot to talk about. You and I were comparing notes. Um, first, I want to share a tale of woe, deception, and disappointment. <clears throat> all right. So, you know, I dabble in shortwave listening, as we all do. You know, those shortwave broadcast bands, you know, they're not as great as they used to be, but they're there, and there's interesting stuff to listen to. So I've been building this HRO receiver using the HRO dial that, that Armand gave me, and I've got it almost done. It's working great on sideband. It still needs some peeking and tweaking and some work on AM, but I can use it for shortwave listening. So every once in a while, I fire it up, and I tune it to the shortwave band above and below uh, the 40-meter amateur band, and I often find interesting stations there. So the other day, I'm tuning around, and all of a sudden, it's in the evening, and I'm listening, and it's it's the voice of Vietnam coming in. Ooh. Wow, that's cool. Now, I've listened to the voice of Vietnam before. I, a while back, I was listening to some, some really cool jazz on the regen receiver that I had just built, and it was so cool because this this jazz was coming in from the other side of the planet, you know, kind of, you know, that kind of long-distance shortwave sound. It sounded great. Okay, so now I'm listening. I'm saying, wow, this is great. The radio gods are rewarding me here. I'm listening to the voice of Vietnam on my new Superhead receiver. But you know what? I'm thinking, wow, it's kind of unusual. Conditions aren't really that great. <laughs> We're not really on the gray line. Um, and this station is remarkably strong. <laughs> Cypress Creek, Creek, South Carolina. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's websites that you can go to now where you just plug in the frequency, and they'll tell you all the shortwave stations that are fired up on that frequency. And I, I did, and I found out that they were using a relay station in Cypress Creek, South Carolina. It took it, it took all the joy out of it. You know, listening well, to South was... Carolina when you're in Virginia, eh. Yeah, but, but wait a minute. There's always a positive side to that. What is it, about 150 to 200 miles from your QTH, Cypress hmm. Creek? Whoop de doo. Yeah, well, but on forty on forty meters at night, that's probably pretty typical. So, it, ah. it, it, well, okay. I worked I'm South. To, I, I worked South Africa. I worked South Africa. Oh yeah. On forty with the Digitia on sideband. And how far was that, Bill? Eight thousand 
41.6 miles. Oh, uh, DX. Yeah, yeah DX. sure. And he was booming in. Wow, that was, that was pretty cool. 40 meters could surprise you. Oh, but yeah. no, Cypress Creek, South Carolina, no. Okay, so that so the next day, I'm tuning around, and I hear something that sounds really exotic. You know, the languages I could you could tell sometimes a little bit sounds South Asian. One of the one of the many many Indian languages coming in from South Asia, maybe Punjabi, something like that, something really cool. And I'm listening, and all of a sudden, every once in a while, you could hear they're giving a a postal address, and it's in Delhi, New Delhi. Okay, so I know I'm listening to a station from India. Wow, how cool is that? And how and and how appropriate. I'm listening to an Indian station on a rig designed in India. Yes. Yeah, there Ooh, you go. Man, there it goes. But again, I get the feeling, hmm, kind of strong. I don't really get too many signals from India. So again, I plug in the the frequency. It's in Germany. It's a it's an Indian broadcaster like a religious broadcaster, it's called uh, Radio Atmia Yatra. I'm mispronouncing it. I'm trying to pronounce it in Spanish. I'm sure that's not right. But Atmia Yatra, broadcasting in Punjabi, but the transmitter is in Naun, Naun, Germany. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, it just it just doesn't seem right, Pete. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, it's, you'd like to think you're hearing a station that says New Delhi, and it's from New, New Delhi. Delhi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, those old days of shortwave listening when you heard HCJB and you knew it was coming from those oh, yeah. those frosty hills in the Andes where they had to they had to build cubicle quads because the corona on the end of the Yaggies was eating up the antennas. Well, anyway, but but now in Germany, sound ended up being pretty interesting because it led me to a, a site where they they give a history of this transmitter location it's quite interesting and I, I put a link to it up on the on the on the blog but it's it's all i don't know i'm kind of i'm old school in this area and i think you are too you know but but it reminds me of a trend that we're seeing in ham radio now and that's these um you know you, you work some guy and he says well yeah the transmitter it's in uh colorado but uh i'm sitting here you know across the street from you <laughs> In Northern and Virginia. a star and a Starbucks <laughs> with a smartphone. <laughs> yeah. Starbucks with a, that's the killer. The Starbucks <laughs> here. The Starbucks with a smartphone. That really gets me. But then the worst that I've had this happen. He says, "I can't hold it too long, old man, because they charge me nine cents a minute." Uh, wow, man, that is holy cow. How can you tell when you're having fun? Yep. I mean, I don't know. And and, and just think about this. The 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 um the what this implies for contesting and 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 paper hunting and the DXCC honor roll, right? So if you you know, I suppose for a sufficient fee, you could sign up with one of these you know super duper stations, right? And you know maybe maybe for ninety cents an, a minute, right? And then you fire up, you fire up. Well, actually, you're just firing up your your iPhone seven. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> and away you go. Your rare DX from the Starbucks. We're living in the future, Pete. Yeah, I'm not well, sure we like it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm with you, Bill. I think, I think there's something to be said. Uh, you know, running a two or three watts QRP and talking to a station, and you're doing it direct, not not through some remote base type of thing. Yeah. Fiber optic cable. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah they, well, we're just old school. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're well. right. You're right. Hey, uh, I was thinking about a couple of things. I, I was placing uh, orders with Amazon, and you know, I. Christmas gifts, a lot of them in there, but I was throwing in a lot of stuff for the shack, you know, 
you know, stocking stuffers that my family knows they're going to get needs to get for me, but they don't know what to ask for. But you could, I was thinking, you could tell if you're a real hardcore uh, kind of home brewer electronics guy if certain things, certain shortages in your shack begin to make you nervous. When that can of deoxid D5 starts getting low, my anxiety level starts to rise. I might, I might need to hit something with some deoxid, and if you don't have it, <laughs> yeah, shortage, shortages of 6040 rosin core solder. Yeah, that's a scary thing. Shortages of 4-40 screws and nuts. Nuts. Oh yeah. man, because those things they just disappear. There's a nut monster out there just, you know, taking them from you. But anyway, so I placed all these orders recently with Amazon, and uh, stocks will be replenished. The, D- the, the Oxid D5 is here already, and I, I feel better as soon as it arrives. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> all right. Hey, hey, while you're at it, why don't you – let's cover the shameless, shameless commerce division since you just mentioned that. Oh. Let's, let's do that early on because let's, Christmas let's do that early on. First, got a weather report. We're under an ice storm here this morning. I know you sitting over there in in Southern California in La La Land. You you love to hear this. Pete's wearing his uh, jaunty beret this morning. Oh yeah, the chick the, magnet. Uh, the chick <laughs> magnet. <laughs> and you know, uh, so uh, but but we're under ice storm conditions here this morning. The temperature here is about two below centigrade, and, and it's raining. That's not a good combination. So there's a there's already a thin coat of ice. I let the dog out before <laughs> he had traction trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, but we're not going anywhere, so that's fine. But it's going to mess things up here for a while. I hope hope it stops because if it continues here, we start getting significant ice accumulation on the branches. They start coming down. They take the power lines down with them. So if we su- if I suddenly disappear from the Sutter Smoke podcast, Pete, you'll know the, the ice storm got us. But, yep. oh, yes, the Shameless Commerce Division. Yeah, um, what we what we ask, the way you, the uh, the individual Solder Smoke listener, can contribute to the podcast is by making all of your Amazon purchases, especially in this holiday season, ho, 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 uh, through the Amazon link on the Solder Smoke page. And all you do is you go in there and you, you put in whatever extremely expensive item you're thinking about buying. You put it in there, and cha-ching, Bezos and company, the suits at Amazon, have to send us a piece of the action. It doesn't cost you anything. It's money out of their pockets. And what could be better than that, Pete, right? There you go. Bob's hey, your uncle. It's the art of the deal. It's hey, the listen, art of the deal. <laughs> I gotta, I'm going to mention this now, though, because we got a we got an email. I don't know if you – I forwarded this yeah, email to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we were, we're, we're going we're to disguise some identities here a little bit, but we got an email. And somehow this is a very English email. I, I say this in yeah. a very kind of yes. you know affectionate way. I live there. I love our British cousins and all that special relationship, yeah, uh, all, all the time. But we got an email from a fellow in the U.K. named Martin. We won't, we won't give any further identifying information. And I can't tell whether he was kidding or not. <laughs> but his concern was, hey, if I buy something through your link on Amazon, does that mean that you know what I'm buying and my identity? He said, I'm really concerned because I noticed that my last order that I placed through your sites, it was listed as ropes and whips. And that could be misunderstood. It yeah, could. Yeah, it could. It, oh, could yeah. you know, it, it, it might, people, some people buying those items are, are not 
thinking about antennas, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, Martin, I can assure you that, uh, I, well, I, I might be able to see these items, but I, I get a, I get a detailed description of the item, and I don't know who bought it, so uh, put your mind at ease. But it is an interesting problem, and for those of you in, in the whips and, uh, and, and ropes business, um, well, we, we understand. We understood here. Antenna related. I'm sorry. Antenna related. Antenna related. It's antenna related. <laughs> Ropes and whips. All right, but anyway, yeah. that's that. That takes care of Shameless Commerce Division. Pete Bench reports. You got a lot going on. <laughs> tell me. Tell us what's happening. Yeah, yeah. First of, I I want to make something known that comes from the last podcast, Uh-oh. and this had to do. Buckle with up, the, folks. Buckle up. <laughs> this had to do with the. Uh, document that you were looking for oh yeah go ahead bill no no you 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 tell tell us okay the last the last podcast bill said they were searching for this uh navy document that covered the reflectometer which was dennis clippa and i yes dennis clippa and you you were the document is really explains how an swr bridge works i mean it's got the science the math the detail it's seminal it started the whole thing yeah, 1949, 1949. So, as a matter of fact, for you, those of you that may own the Heathcote HM15, that was based on its design. As a matter of fact, that's how I first came upon the document. I was reading up on the HM15, and it says, by the way, we owe credit to the U.S. Navy because this is where the design came from. It was the Naval Research Labs. So, anyway… Uh, Bill mentioned that Dennis was trying to find this and he couldn't – Bill and uh, – I guess you as well were looking for it, were trying to find this document and couldn't find it on the internet. And then Dennis went to the Navy and said, can you get me one? And they said, yeah, can you give us your credit card? You know how that works. Yeah. So he ended up buying one and when he got it, the copy wasn't very good. It was a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy and it was almost illegible. So the, the drawings were okay. So Dennis – in true ham fashion, retyped the whole document and then inserted the drawings from the original document there and created a new document. And you mentioned that in the podcast saying it's it was now up on the website. And I said to you, you didn't ask me. <laughs> and I said, I've got the document. And you said, no, you can't have the document. So tell them what happened. So you got it. You you sent it to me, and we looked at it. And you had indeed have the, had the document. I think, you know, it, it's just, it was so foolish of me not. To immediately turn to the Wizard of Newberry Park, because I, 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 this this caused me to conclude that all significant and perhaps insignificant documents related to the radio art are somewhere to be found in the in the file system, the amazing file system of Pete Giuliano. So keep that in mind, folks, as you do your radio research. Yeah, oh, now now we open the floodgates. <laughs> anyway, I, I just you know that document was really amazing, and think back. That was 1949 is when it was prepared. And uh, so here it is, uh, you know, relevant today. So if you really want to do, you know, find out how an SWR bridge works, kind of amazing. You you have the resource listed up on the, on the, on the blog so they can it, find it. It is an amazing, it's an amazing piece of technology. And how, what percentage of radio amateurs do you think actually understand how that simple little device, you know, sometimes they, you can get them for like 12 bucks. They're everywhere. I mean, they're all over the place. They're, it looks like you open it up. It looks like there's one little wire. There's two little wires alongside it, sensing wires, a couple diodes, a couple caps, a switch, a meter. But how many people really understand the physics behind that device? Probably don't. No, uh, no. It, it, this is this is on the same same vein as the double balance mixer. 
Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Say, 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 say me. Same okay, thing. anyway, bench report. Bench report. Okay, since since the last podcast, I, I've actually been working on two projects. The first is the FPM5, and I had it on the workbench. Alfresco. <laughs> and wires everywhere. I mean, the front panel was okay, and it was C-clamped to the workbench, but I was making contacts with – man, it was a jumble of wires. Well, I since got it in the box. So I've been able to translate from the benchtop, and I got to tell you, I was really frightened about what I had done on the bench, and was I able to, <laughs> to translate that to a box? I mean, I just said, I, I need a wire there, tax solder something there. Wait, but go so, back a second. Okay. Give us a little history on the FPM. Okay, the FPM is was the FPM three hundred was an offering from Halicrafters. Uh, back in the early 70s, it was a hybrid rig. It was mostly solid state except for the driver in the final. And they had some pretty significant problems with the introduction. As a matter of fact, there were three versions, uh, Mark One, Mark Two, Mark Three. And by the time they got to Mark Three, they got the, some of the major problems fixed. One of those included uh, VFO drift. Another one, because it was it had a built-in power supply and things were pretty compact, there was feedback into the solid state circuit. So there was some shielding issues. And then they had some really mechanical issues about how it was put together. They used these uh, spline belt drives on the on to with a band switch that ganged everything, and these would wear out. And you know your band switch would be out of lock. And uh, so about two years ago, I bought one for a really good price, and someone had really cobbled this thing up. As a matter of fact, uh, normally it was rated at about 150 watts or so. Someone put a six LF six in there, and they they cobbled the, the the PA stage so you could run five six hundred watts off this this rig. So if you think you had problems at 150, imagine what you have with five or six hundred running in there. So I tried to fix it. Someone Jimmy the power supply, and finally in disgust, I pulled the main board and the S meter, and then I sold the Hulk for parts. There were people that were looking for a case and people were looking for a power connector, and, and I had all that, and so. The, the net loss was 20 bucks. So the board and the uh, and the S meter essentially cost me 20 meters. It was at the bottom of the junk box, and so in a theme of the recent months of working out of the junk box, I said I'm going to make this work. So I essentially made a five band radio out of it. Along the way, um, there were some interesting problems that I had to resolve, and I, I got some worldwide help on this. One of those. Was I came up with a, a system of so when you hit the band, it's got a mechanical band switch that actually uh, supplies power to banks of uh, band pass filters, low pass filters that are relay uh, uh, <clears throat> relay connected. So you put power to the right pair, and the right set of relays comes in. But I also wanted to be able to switch the Arduino, so the Arduino would follow the frequency. And I I came up with a way to do it, but it wasn't the most efficient way. And thanks uh, to Greg down in VK Land. He uh, helped me with the code. Now you put the band switch. The TFD display goes on the right band. The right set of band pass filters, low pass filters get selected, and you're off and running. And I, I should also mention I ran across a guy that actually worked on this radio, <laughs> and he's still very active on the Helicrafters reflector. And uh, so he's been very, very helpful in explaining some – there was some – connections to the they have a 22 pin connector and there were some connections there and you look at the schematic and say what the heck's that for and then he he kind of explained uh you know why they did certain things so you had to in transitioning design from 
the original helicrafters to what I've done, you had to take account of these things. And uh, like, for instance, some of the connectors were only active on single sideband. Some were only active on CW, and it wasn't quite clear in the switching uh, how that all happened. So he cleared up the mystery. So uh, I've now got it in the box. I, I haven't made any contacts with it because now that I've got it in the box, I've had to go back and do some realignment of all the stages. Before, when you had to spread out in the bench, you have an extra long piece of coax. Now you have a shorter piece, and so that affects some of the, the uh, filter frequencies because of the loading of the coax. And I'm in that process right now, but it looks like it's all gonna gonna work okay. It's kind of nice. You move the the band switch knob, and it's a new band. New set of filters are in there, and you're ready to go. Man, it looks great too. I mean, you, it, I, I saw the pictures of it. Pete has pictures up on on his blog. Take a look. I mean, you really, it's beautiful. It's, it's almost it's almost almost looks too good, Pete. You might have to ugly it up a bit. <laughs> People are going to think it's a commercial rig in that Giuliano blue color. Yeah, Giuliano blue. You know, you you get into you, you when you've been around the pole a little bit, like I have. You you try to exercise some care about uh, measuring things and and making sure you didn't have a problem. And uh, I was really careful. Of, actually, the first thing that I put on there because it was usually an afterthought is I put these big rubber feet on it, which makes it nice because then it sits off the bench. And you can drill right through the bottom plate, and not not worry. Oh, about I did the same. I did the same thing last week. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I I was real careful to position those, and then I, I marked something on the top of the uh, <clears throat> and these rubber feet I, I happen to have in a junk box are almost. Uh, Two inches in diameter. They're big ones, which is really kind of nice because that's a that's a big big board. So anyway, uh, I I thought I marked something. I thought I cleared one of them, and believe it or not, it was kind of like right on the edge. So if you put a screw in there, the, the rubber foot was not going to seat right. I just was so mad at myself because I had taken all this care, you know, and you kind of get a little bit in a hurry. So then the light bulb went on. The plate is pretty thick. And I had some uh, Phillips uh, screws that were not the flathead, so I countersunk the hole. <laughs> it's now flat in the bottom. <laughs> you put the foot back on. You don't know. You know. Oh, you man, can't see it. Attention to aesthetic detail. There you go. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I put so much care into this thing. I said I am not going to screw that this thing up. So there was, there's one screw. But you know what? I've been watching. There's a there's a TV channel. I might have mentioned this last week. I don't watch a lot of TV, but. There's a channel called Velocity, and it's all about guys working on cars, restoring cars, and things like that, and how they do the metal work. And, I mean, some of them are, like, really precise. They plan everything out. But some of them, especially if they're working on the restoration of old cars, I see that them doing things with chassis and bodies and the metal work that reminds me a lot about how some of us, me more than you, just sort of kind of wing it when it comes time to put the electronics in the cabinet. You know, I... I, I know I need to be a lot more precise. I know things would come out a lot neater and a lot prettier. But I'm, I was pleased to see somebody, some people sort of following the same procedures with, with the cars. Yeah. 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 Yours, yeah. yours look beautiful. You want a hole there, so so anyway, we'll. Uh, I, I'm going to make a video uh, of uh, you know listening to the various bands and maybe an on-air QSO and I kind of wrap that up because actually I'm under the gun with a bit X40. Oh, that's, that's the next thing. Yeah, next thing on the bench. And uh, why I'm under the gun with the Bit X40 is that um, Ben uh, KK6FUT, who's uh, a good friend and lives close by here in Newberry Park, he he's been going around to ham clubs in, in the local area talking about homebrewing. So I mean, 
this is really interesting. This is a movement, Bill. <laughs> there are people going out and say, "Hey, we gotta we gotta homebrew stuff. We gotta, we gotta do it. You can get a lot of fun." And he's, matter of fact, he's brought with him the simple siever. He brought this and demonstrated it, and and the direct conversion version, the first first. First thing that I did with the direct conversion, and, and a lot of people were amazed. So one of the ham clubs uh, contacted me and said, uh, you know, Ben carried it to this level, but he suggested we contact you to get a little more detail. And I said, you know, what you ought to do is consider taking on the BitX40 as a club project. Excellent, because, you know, BitX40, a completely uh, already constructed board. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole transceiver on a board, all you have to do is hook up some of the peripheral controls available from India. And at yeah. a price, what's the price? Forty-five dollars shipped from India. Yeah, wow. and I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. But you get everything in the kit. So uh, I've been working with the club president, and on the 13th of January, we're going to uh, I'm gonna do it via Skype, just like we're doing here. It's a little hard for me to get away for a couple hours and travel up the Ventura, and you know what I do with the XYL. So anyway, um, I told him that to help with this effort. That I would create several web pages on my website, and that's the n6qw.com website, and it, there's a link in there that says the BitX40. And essentially, what I tried to do is capture the history of the original BitX down to the current BitX40, and everywhere in there, there's links all over the place. You click on the link, it takes you to the original BitX20 article, and then to the current HF6, and so you can read all about it. And explain, you know, how this design came about and how many thousands are being <laughs> are in use worldwide. And then I go into the detail of how you actually take this complete kit but put it into a box. Yep. Because most of the guys want to put it in a box. So uh, there, there's links all over the place. Like here is a box. You click on the link and it takes you right to the website where you can buy a box or a chassis. Uh, you were talking about 440 screws and nuts. A lot of these guys, the guy, there's there's two guys, two kinds of people in this club. One group has got the Baofeng $35 VHF UHF handheld, and that's the extent of their ham station. And the other guys have the 7300, and there's nothing in between, and there's not a lot of home brewing going on. So a lot of them don't have, and I'm admiring your shop, Bill. I mean, you're really to the nth degree. Your screwdrivers are in a slot. I'm, I'm looking up behind you. You've got a pegboard with screwdrivers all in slots and things like that. And and most most of these guys don't even have the tools. So I I detailed all the tools that they need. And you click on a link, and it says go to Home Depot and buy this 440 tap, <laughs> and it's yep. it's got the part number. You need a rat tail file. Click on this link and go there. You know so. It's really got a lot of detail. And then talking about thinking inside the box. Many times, you know, guys don't think inside the box. You got this enclosure, and you need to think: where is the board going to go? For instance, if you read Farhan's instructions very carefully, it says, "Don't put the board more than two inches away from where the RF connector is. Yep. Locate, locate that." And so, how many guys will say, "Yeah, I'll put it up towards the front," and you got a big wire going along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I. I tried to cover all these things about how to do that. And uh the the club president I met with him yesterday <clears throat> and he got he bought the the BitX40 and uh his arrived but he had not so good of an experience. Uh you were showing me you got another one here in the plastic box. Yeah. His his plastic box got run over by a steamroller. And uh, it didn't survive the trip. Now mine came in a cardboard box and I I mean 
nothing happened. So he, he sent a note to Farhan with some photos saying, you need to think about this packaging. Somehow it's not doing real well. I mean, the side, side of the box, two sides of the boxes were smashed. And what, what's worse, they got into the bag of parts. Some of, some of the nuts are missing. Yeah. So he, 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 you know, he's going to make do with it, but it, it just, so I, I'm sure Farhan's going to address that, but this was, I'm sure the plastic box was the idea. Hey, it'll be more rugged <laughs> than yeah. the, the cardboard rubber box, but this one, this one didn't make it. He showed me the pictures, didn't make it. Um, a couple of notes here. First off, I, but that's, and, un, that's and, unusual. I think, you know, the number of people, we've been surprised. I think Farhan's been surprised too. About how well the postal system has worked, because you know you're you're taking it through the Indian postal system and then into the U.S. The U.S. Yeah. postal system, in my experience, they crush a There's lot of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, make, how many make, how many of our three point five seven nine crystals were destroyed by the United States Postal yeah. Service? Yeah, well. And so, wherever it is. yeah, whatever it is, but I mean, there's a pretty good BidX Yahoo group on, and people are discussing it. I think people, most people are really surprised at how quickly the package gets to them. And I, no question, I'm two for two. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, just 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 a, a piece of data. All, oh, yeah. all, all information is good information. So anyway, a couple of things that I've done on on my BitX. Uh, there's a picture on the blog. I've got the LCD. And by the way, that that was really an interesting experience. When I uh, put the Arduino together, most of the time I'll drive LCDs right off the five volt rail on the Arduino. And so I did most of the development work on a computer. So I had it hooked up essentially through the USB and display was fine. Hooked it up into the uh, radio with the uh, nine volt power supply and the, and, and the screen went dim. So you put it back in the computer, skin is bright. <laughs> Hook it into the nine volt supply, it's dim. And you know what it was? What? Evidently the five volt regulator on the Arduinos are bypassed when you're hooked into the ah. computer. But when you supply it off the rail, it was too much current. So I solved the problem by just putting an onboard, onboard 5-volt regulator yeah, off yeah. the 12-volt rail and then fed, fed the LCD. So all is well. But, I, I mean, I sat there scratching my head. I'm saying it works on the computer <laughs> but not on the power supply. But so you got to be careful. I mean, we re, we just take for granted, oh, yeah, there's a 5-volt regulator on the Arduino board, and, and, and away we go. It's typical. Typical of those evil little boards. You know, they, yeah. they, they're, they're always going to trip you up. They've got all yeah. kinds of little complexities, little rules. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you put a semicolon in the wrong place, it you know it yeah. turns into a toaster or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, the uh, the other thing too is um, uh, first thing I did is I got rid of the uh, audio gain pot with the switch. It's got a non-standard shaft on it. It's a metric shaft. I didn't have any, and I, I can see these guys trying to find a knob. So you know what I, I did? I, I wrapped a, a couple of layers of uh, gorilla tape and put the. Oh, yeah, Okay. That would cause culture shock in the, uh, yeah, plug and, said, in the plug and I play said, world. I said, throw that thing away. Here's a pot. <laughs> Go get it at Jameco. And I gave him the part number and the link read, buy this pot. And then uh, you need, I, I replaced the switch with a mini toggle and I click on that and you go to the link. And then I talked about uh, what kind of hand tools. I mean, I'm sure these guys, I'm looking at your tools back there. I'm sure these guys, a lot of them, just don't have the tools. So I said, look, start with the center punch. If you want to put a hole somewhere, <laughs> start with a center punch. Get a 16th-inch pilot drill and, you know, drill the hole first and then come up to size, what you need to do. So I tried to cover all these steps, so, and it's on the website. So hopefully, uh, matter of fact, our friend uh, Steve Murphy, N8MN, said, why don't you put a nibbler on, on the list of tools? So yeah, I uh, I'm yeah. that. 
I'm going to add that and the pop rivet. It, sometimes it's not ba- not all bad to pop rivet things. You know, you, you go, go together and it works just fine. So I'm I'm trying to cover more detail, uh, specifically aimed at this club, but it may be some use to to folks who are interested in building this and maybe. You know, it's a little more than just taking the board. <laughs> you know, you want to put it in something. You, you got to do it right, especially if you're not if you're not very experienced at this, and this may be your first one. You want it to be a very positive experience. So. I, I think it, I think it's great, and I think the it, the X forty is serving the purpose that Farhan had in mind when he, yeah. when he put it out. Because if you watch, look at the X twenty Yahoo group. Um, it's amazing. You got guys. It's obvious from the emails that this is their real first experience with working on a rig. Yeah. And sometimes you you could see that they're they're not really understanding it, or you know they're going down the wrong path. But but even there's there's cases where you'll see something, and those of us who are familiar with earlier versions of the BitX will realize that that the new version has something different in there. I didn't oh, yeah. know. I didn't know that you know the all the old BitXs that we worked on, the pot. In the RF amp, sets the bias level, and you have to set it really carefully, or also blow up that FET. In the BitX40, that's not what the pot does. The pot's set in the drive level. It's just it's a, it's a pot that's on the driver, and it's set in the drive level for the final. And so he's and Farhan has a has a, a regulator in there that sets the bias, which is really good because if not, you know those. FETs would be popping all around the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was maybe, a smart maybe, move. maybe in my league. Hey, hey. By the way, I want to I want to mention about Farhan and Uma. Oh man, that's really cool. That was a cool Uma. story, wasn't it? Uma. Okay. Uma is the crystal sorter. Okay. She sorts all the crystals, and and every day, what's that? A thousand crystals. A thousand a day. A thousand a day. Uma goes through these crystals. Now I want to make people aware that because um, I asked you this question. Before I got my BitX, I said, what, what's the BFO on? You gave me the frequency. Actually, there are three frequencies that, that uh, Farhan listed. So if you're going to make the transition to like an SI5351 and, and bypass that crystal, you, you got to know which one it was. That's right. That's it's right. not, it's not what's marked on the crystal. It's, it's what Uma sorted. And, and I think he said there was three. Was, was there three well, badges? Yeah, it's it's really it, it was this was I thought this was really interesting and I'm glad you brought it up. First of all, Uma is a member of this collective of women that Farhan is is using. He's given them some work. They normally sew clothing, but now they're sewing toroidal inductors and they're they're also instead of selecting buttons, they're selecting crystals. Crystals, yeah. So, but but I had assumed, and again, this is another kind of assumption that can get you in trouble. I had assumed that my crystal filter in my Bidex and and my uh, BFO oscillator was the same as everybody else's. So I had taken my frequency counter and I had measured the BFO at 11.9988. Eight. That's what I put in the Arduino. Right. And then I, I also did a quick look at the, 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 the bandwidth of the crystal filter and discovered that it did go down below. It, it extended about three KCs down below that BFO frequency. So perfect because we're on LSB on 40 meters. There is no sideband inversion here. So you need an LSB filter, and that's what we had. And, and Farhan said it was in his experience that that's why he he took the the the, the tuning uh, capacitor and coil out of the BFO, so it's just whatever's in the in the in the crystal. Now the reason he does that is because when Uma selects the four crystals for the filter, she selects the fifth one for the BFO, 
And it just happens that when those are all on the same frequency in this circuit, the BFO lands just where it's supposed to land in relation to the crystal filter passband. So that was, that was really pretty cool. But you're right. And what Farhan said was, in essence, every filter and every BFO Custom. Is, is different. It's different. Yeah. And because it's the batch that Uma got, they're not using really expensive crystals. I mean, this, they're using computer grade crystals. So there's quite a bit of variation. They're the, the little kind of short stack kind of low to the board crystals. Yeah. That surprised me. Yeah. And, but they work fine. They keep the cost down. The only thing is, is that when Uma does the selection, you know, your frequency may vary. It may be a very yeah, little yeah, bit. Mine yeah. is 11.9988. Yours might be 11.981 or some yeah. 9981 or something I like that. Nine nine. There's a seven in there somewhere. I remember seeing yeah. that. So anyway, yeah. just just to be alert to that, that uh, if you go to make a transition uh, to an SI5351, you're you're going to have to. Now I'm going to have to check. What mine is, I just said, oh, yeah, they're all the same, and they got them on frequency. So that's what I plugged in the Arduino sketch. I'm going to have to, when I actually get it on here, see see where it is. But this is this is great, Pete, because this is an example of the kind of learning that takes place. Yeah. A, no, a number of guys who on, on the on the BitX Yahoo group have been commenting that they don't like the sound of their transceiver. It sounds bassy or it sounds too high. And right away, I knew... What this was, it's the placement of the BFO. It's the placement of that carrier frequency oscillator. It's it's critically important, and it, and, and a, a bad placement, the first place it shows up is the way the receiver sounds. You know, because when you think about it, and it really helps, I think, if you draw yourself a picture, you've got that passband, and if you want an LSB signal, you've got to have that crystal right up near the top so that the, 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 the audio signals will be inside the passband. You, you, you want to have it placed right. You don't want to have it placed all the way off to the side or else you'll lose the highs. You don't want to have it placed all the way further in. You know, you'll lose the lows if you have it misplaced. you got to find what Farhan calls the sweet spot. And so a lot of guys were jumping to the conclusion that there was something wrong with the audio amplifier. And they started messing around with the capacitors in the audio output. I mean, and I was saying, no, 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 you know, but on the SI5351, one way you could do it would be just to experiment. Assume that the, that your crystal filter, even if you haven't measured it, even if you don't know for certain, even if you don't have a frequency counter, right? Because a lot of guys don't have a counter, so they can't get an accurate reading on where the BFO is, right? Before they start using the SI5351. But, you can go in and in the Arduino IDE, just experiment with different settings for the BFO frequency right. coming out of the SI5351. Don't move it a lot. You know, just move it, you know, 500 hertz or something like that, yeah. up, down, and just listen to it several times until you get it. When it sounds good, then you're probably in the right spot. Or I put a link because I found a field tech for 40 bucks. Ah, the field tech. You got the field tech for forty, huh? Pretty yeah, good. You, you, I found it's it's not the super duper version, but I said those guys probably didn't want to spend a hundred bucks. This but is the Chinese signal generator that we've been playing si with. Signal generator. So you can set the free, you know, dis disconnect the the BFO, crank it up there, and when you get where it sounds right, read the frequency. There you go. <laughs> That's right. And then put and then put that in the SI fifty three fifty one. Yeah. And yeah. again, what's the phrase? Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. Yeah. So check the link. Because the field tech, I found one for 40 bucks. Excellent, excellent. No, good, good stuff. 
And uh, this is just an example of, I mean, how the BIDX40 module is really, you know, encouraging yeah. experimentation around the world. And, and uh, the discussions on the Yahoo group are really great. It's very friendly. Nobody puts anybody down. Everybody realizes that this is a, a rig designed for uh, for people who are relatively new to the to the homebrew game. Yeah. Now I, I want to I want to quote you from the the club president yesterday when we met. Now he's he's been a long time ham uh, and he's done a lot of stuff, but he hasn't done much homebrewing. And he's his last words to me as we was leaving the parking lot. I am really excited about this. There you go. That's it. Feel the excitement. That's it. And you're you're dealing with a bit of a of a clash of cultures though here the the plug and play folks versus the home brewers, and it it really does it, it's 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 difficult sometimes to get folks who are used to kind of a plug and play world, used to the idea that they might have to work on it they might have to struggle with it there might be bugs they might have to debug, they might have to pull some hair out you know and and it's it's because it, it's a completely different concept I was reminded of this I listened to a podcast called Science Friday, NPR. Ira Flato has been doing Flato, it for many yeah. years. Good guy. Uh, but they have a new feature on there, and it's called disassembling, right? And all it is is these the young people, somebody says, let's take something apart and see what it looks like inside, right? They don't do anything with it. They don't really figure out how it works, but they'll like they'll find a camera, an old camera lens and take it apart. And, ooh, there are all these interesting-looking parts, but they're like, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed because they're kind of patting themselves on the back saying, look at us, we took it apart. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you didn't turn it into a radio or a telescope. That's the next step. That's the real stuff. But uh, so there's, it is a, a culture gap to bridge, and I'm glad that you are doing your part, Pete. You bet. Bringing you bet. Home, so brew, home brewers, the new generation of home brewers. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there you go. That's it. That's that's the bench report. All right. Well, my bench report is very similar because I, I pick up with the uh, the bit X40. That's what I've been been working on quite a bit. I I put mine together, and I I was going to put it in the box, but I like the look of the board so much that I put it up on top of the box. I got pictures of it up on the blog. I call it the extroverted bit X40. <laughs> extroverted, and uh, it it seems to work for me. I got a little little chassis. I guess it's about the size of a cigar box, and I've got the the board mounted on the top. Uh, one side I had some extra room to put a bigger heat sink on because I did the trick that you just mentioned. I used the extra connector that Farhan provided, and I put, instead of 12 volts, I put 24 volts just on the drain of the final amplifier. And, man, that IRF-510, Allison was telling us for a long time that they work better at 24 volts than at 12, and that's really true. And you can get 20, 25 watts out of this thing, and it's fantastic. Uh I'm using the the, the heatsink that uh, Chris KB4PBJ had sent me a while back. They, they're the perfect size. I used the tap and die skills that you taught me and got it in there. And then I built my analog VFO, and there's enough space so that's off to the right. So everything is above above the board. The only thing that's in, in the chassis down below is some the connectors and and, and maybe the uh, a few of the plugs. But that's that's it. And uh, and I, I've really had a lot of fun with this. The, my analog frequency readout is, uh, is, is something to behold. Uh, <laughs> again, this is a clash of cultures because yeah. I've got this, 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 this VFO that I built based on a, a diagram for a very simple stable VFO in solid state design for the radio amateur. Thanks to Wes Hayward for that. It's really simple. There's about six parts in it. There's an, there's an FET. 
a coil, a variable cap, a diode, a resistor, one other cap. That's it. I got it really stable. I've got it running right in the frequency range that we want. And I have this little circular disc on the, the dial that moves when you're turning it. So I took some Dymo tape and marked the frequencies. But then I needed something to kind of precisely, well, not really precisely, but sort of precisely. You, you needed a dial indicator. A dial indicator. So I took a, a piece of old PC board. I glued it, glued it to the uh, the front of the, the metal chassis. And then I took um, a Sharpie, a magic marker, black magic marker, and I drew an arrow horizontal. <laughs> so there it is. That's my frequency readout. And I, I love it. It's, it's great. I mean, I love this little rig. So um, it, that, that's been terrific. But this brings us, uh, Farhan set up a page called bidxhacks.com, and it's important. And those of us who have been doing hacks and, and improvements and, and modifications on the Bidx40 have been posting articles there. I posted a number of them. The first one I posted, and this is a subject that I know is near and dear to your heart and that has struck a nerve in your teeth too, Pete, but I'm going to mention it. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Save yourself. <laughs> Reverse polarity protection. I will be damned. <laughs> Man, if you want to, those are fighting words of the homebrew community. If you want to, if you want to stir up some, you know, some tech trouble, just say those words. Well, my thoughts about reverse polarity protection are as follows. Okay, look, let's tell people what it is. Reverse polarity protection is to prevent a techno tragedy. And yeah. we have all done it. Here's what it, what happens, guys. You work on this complicated rig. You toil away at it for weeks and weeks. You debug it. You troubleshoot it. You finally got it playing good. And then one night when you're kind of tired, you go in there you tell your wife, honey, I'm just going to listen to this thing for a few minutes to see how things are on good old 40-meter band. You go in there, and you take the red wire from the power supply, and you connect that to the chassis. And then you take the black wire from the power supply, and you connect that to the red wire from the rig. And then what happens, Pete? You smoke it. <laughs> the smoke comes out. <laughs> you release the magical smoke. Yeah, Congratulations. Yeah. You have just blown up and burnt out just about every active device and perhaps some of the electrolytic capacitors, too, on that board. Poof! So anyway, what reverse polarity protection is, it's a, it's a way of preventing you from doing that. All right? It's like a seatbelt or a safety switch or safety on a gun or something like that. And there are many, 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 many ways of doing this. There are really, really complicated ways of doing this. And then there are really simple ways of doing this. I, I like simple, all right? Because it's hard enough, Pete, it's hard enough to get guys to do this at all, right? Because what does everybody say? I'm never going to do that. I'm yeah, going to remember. Right. <laughs> red to red and black to black. Yeah, yeah. Boom. All right, but how many guys out there are even using the proper color wires? No, they're using whatever wire they found in the junk box. It's hard to remember. Anyway, the simple my my favorite way of doing this has always been at wherever the power is coming into the box, I take a diode, a pretty hefty diode, and I put it across reverse biased across the input, the 12 volt input going in to ground, right? And so right away you get protection because if you, because under normal circumstances that diode's not going to conduct. It's going to look open. It's just going to be sitting there doing nothing. 
However, if you reverse, put, if you do what I just described, that diode is going to conduct like crazy, right? And it's probably going to blow the fuse in your power supply, and the whole thing's going to shut down. No smoke will have been released. You could even make it safer. You can, as you should anyway, put a fuse in series going into the input so that in the power cord, in the power cord, cord right? So now when you do the reverse thing, that the the second that diode starts to conduct, boom! Right away, that fuse blows. But the naysayers come up, Pete. Right? Uh. Well, there might be several milliseconds before the fuse blows. Right? Ooh. Okay, all right. And I suppose in some really sensitive, with some really sensitive electronics where they can't stand, you know, 0.6 volts of reverse, you know, electricity for a couple of milliseconds or something like that. Yeah, okay, then, you know, go ahead and do the more complicated stuff. But I think for our purposes, I think for most of the rigs that we're working on, this kind of simple solution is fine. You had your own solution, you, the one you like. Tell us about that. Yeah. Actually, I had – they're using a diode and a relay, and the diode and a relay, in one case, uh, the voltage is connected uh, to to the relay so that if you have the correct polarity, uh, the, the relay uh, is supplying voltage. It's in, other, in other words, a double-pole single throw. So the normally closed contact is connected to the rig, and there's a diode uh, that feeds uh, the relay coil. So – if you reverse bias it, what will happen is uh, the relay will open, is relay and disconnect it. So the and the argument I made there is this is a passive circuit because it doesn't waste any milliamps in the uh, relay coil until such time as you reverse them. And so uh, I, I got an argument back that well for that brief period of time uh, reverse voltage is supplied relay closures are slow and you're going to smoke the rig and I, I didn't prefer that method. The other method was that the uh, <clears throat> using the same relay and diode is that uh, it's an active circuit. So when you have the proper voltage, the field coil is energized and the relay switches from the normally uh, normally closed to the normally open. And now you got voltage supplied. So you can only supply voltage if it's in the proper polarity. And the answer I got back was you're wasting milliamps in the field coil. And if you take that QRP, you're going to drain your battery. Well, I'm not taking it QRP in the field. <laughs> I'm operating it on the bench. But you might. You might. <laughs> I don't give a crap. <laughs> and, and, and I said, tell me electronically why that, the second solution, which I prefer, won't work. Well, yeah, it'll absolutely work. But I want you to use a FET. You know, use a FET. That's the way I do it. Yeah. That's the way I do it. Well, it was 10 o'clock at night and I reached in the junk box. I didn't have a FET, but I had a diode and a relay. Yeah, I think this is a, a good example where the perfect is the enemy of the good enough. And, yeah. You know, and so I, I go for the simple stuff. There's all kinds. A lot of people call these crowbar circuits, all kinds of different ways of doing it. Everybody has their preferred method. And so far, mine has worked for me. So uh, anyway, well, there we go. There's a lot of controversy. We live in a controversial time, Pete. Yeah, mine works perfect. You put the reverse voltage in there, that relay will not switch. By the way, here, here was a very clever solution from uh, Greg down in VK land. He said, put a bridge rectifier in there. 
He says, so no matter what you put the voltage in, you're always going to get the right voltage. Yeah. You reverse the leads. He said, yeah, you're going to get a voltage drop. That's going to be – well, that was the other argument from this individual. Your, your Bill, if you had a two-amp draw, and uh, because some guys put a diode in series, not across, right. Right. but they put it in series, and the idea is if you've got the voltage reverse, you, you won't want anything to go through. That's well, you got simple, yeah. Yeah, one point you got one point. Uh, if you had two amps in there and you had a six tenths junction voltage, you're wasting one point two watts in that diode uh, every day. Well, for for the QRP guy that takes us to the field with the batteries, you're probably going to be concerned about that. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> this is on a bench supply, <laughs> and what I've got <laughs> with my diode and the relay. It is absolutely – you will not put any juice in that radio if the voltage – if the uh, leads are reversed. If the relay will not be energized. It's just real simple. What right. I had in the junk box, 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> Protect yourself, gentlemen. Yeah, and gentlemen, regardless. From reverse polarity problems. All right, there you yeah. go. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention a couple – well, a couple of things on the bench. My, my HRO receiver, I mentioned it earlier. It is no longer al fresco. It's in the box. I'm, that, I'm uh, looking at it. I'm looking at it. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Goodness. And that, that, that is a, the HRO dial. I want somebody to tell me how old they think that HRO dial is. I think that, that uh, HRO started making those things about 1934. But I think they made them up through the 60s. So there's a significant range there in how old this thing could be. If anybody has any sense of how you can date them or find out let me know but thanks to armin for sending that thing to me and thanks to tim sutton for uh sending us the, the boxes that i have i have in there now i have another one so that'll be another project i still need to work as i said on the uh am receiver I, i'm finding that uh it's easier to get the thing going with ssb and a product detector to bfo that works fine but getting it to work properly for shortwave listening on am is being a bit of a, a more of a challenge it's also a testing challenge you know if you want to test like total gain through a receiver, well, it's pretty easy when you're using the product detector and a BFO. You know, you could you could make comparisons. Yeah. All you do is you you know you put a little signal in at the at the antenna input, you monitor the output, and then you see you you you, you change different settings and you see how it affects the the signal going all the way through. But guess what? If you're on AM, you've got to have that that signal from the signal generator's got to be modulated with audio, or else you're not going to get anything, right? And even our field tech doesn't, have, as far as I can tell, it doesn't have a, uh, an output there that's that's AM modulated. Some of the old signal generators did, like the Heathkit SG6 and SG8. 400 hertz. That's right. You could just throw a switch and modulate it. But this modern stuff, you know, there we go. They should somebody should somebody should do something, Pete. We need some AM modulation coming well, out of field tech. I, I suddenly have an interest in uh, AM detection, and the reason is yesterday, uh, kind of a complicated way i ended up with an af an lmac af67 you got it you got it i got it oh it's it's in really good i haven't opened the case but externally it's in really good shape so it's on 160 meters so now i'm going to need a 160 meter receiver because because i want to get an am receiver so i have the simple receiver that i want to now convert to am so i'm going to be interested in what you do with the am detectors i'm getting all kinds of good suggestions it's it's, it's much com- more complicated than you thought the, the standard diode detectors they introduce a bit of distortion and so there's all kinds of solutions some 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 circuits are what they call infinite <laughs> impedance detectors others just keep the diode turned on at all times and so it's not kind of operating at in the kind of the close to conduction or below conduction portion of the curve um, 
but it, it is an interesting problem. I'm going to continue to work on it. Um, but you mentioned boat anchors. I had a boat anchor day last weekend. I didn't even plan it. It's just one of these things. The, the spirits moved me. I started out by looking at my HT37 transmitter that I've had for many years, the, the phasing transmitter, and I realized that it, a lot important parts of it had deteriorated pretty badly. The AC power cord looked like it was the original, probably the original cord from 1959. You want to fix that? I did. Yeah. <laughs> also, the uh, speaking about protection, the uh, the dot, the uh, the holder for the um, for the for the for the fuse had completely kind of deteriorated. That was messed up. So I pulled the HT37 off the bench, which let me tell you, it's not an easy thing to do. That thing is heavy. I actually hurt my back. I mean, I, I spent a couple of days kind of, you know, with a sore back, just moving that thing from the opposite rating position over to the bench. But I got that all squared away. I cleaned it out quite a bit too. I sprayed a lot of, the, you know, got the dust out and vacuumed in there, and we used some of the new deoxid on it. It seems to be working a lot better. It's ready for straight keenite. And so that was one boat anchor project. The other thing I did was I wanted to move the L-Network antenna tuner for my 160-meter antenna for the DX100 and the HQ100. I did that. I've now got it in a place where it's not going to be covered by two feet of snow during the next couple oh, months. good. Yeah, yeah. So it's in the garage. I could go out there. It's, it's in the cold, but it's, it's like an appropriate spot in the corner of the garage for the antenna. I've had it on 160. I've made a few AM contacts on 160. Um, and... I think I'm going to be on straight Keenite this year with the HT37 and the Drake 2B, maybe on 40 meters. My third boat anchor project was that when I went over to get the, the key for straight Keenite, I noticed that on, I guess it's kind of a J38 key, it's a standard straight key. It's not actually a J38, but it's one of the lookalikes. The, the ball bearings had all fallen out. You know, the little, where, where the, the, the key, the, the, the pivot point yeah. doesn't work too well that way. So I actually went down to the hardware store and bought the appropriately sized uh, uh, ball wow, bearings. You're lucky. you're lucky you found them. Well, it was. It didn't have to be exact. Pretty close was good enough. And I, I found that more or less the right size, came back, popped them in there, and I was feeling like a true radio amateur. I mean, I have replaced the ball bearings on my telegraph key. This is up there with doing the dial string on the, on the, on the Drake 2B or fixing the dial clutch on the uh, HW101. Or the S thirty eight E dial restraint. <laughs> oh, that's a that's a that's a rig too far right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so it was it was real boat anchors day, and I made a few contacts, and it was it was a lot of fun. My next project, and this ends the. Uh, hey, hey, go ahead. Before you you pass on there, I got a real surprise yesterday. The uh, you can look it up on the internet. The multi LMAC AF sixty seven. This thing is only about one cubic feet, but one cubic foot. You know, twelve by twelve by twelve. So it's not very big. But it weighs as much as that HG37. When the, when the guy handed it to me yesterday, God. you know, I was expecting one thing, and it, and it almost dropped out of my hands. Yeah. And I said, well, "What weighs some the modulation transformers?" It's made out of uranium or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, jeez. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, and there's a lot of those rigs out. I'm, I'm surprised when I get on AM. I talk to a lot of. Uh, multi LMAX out there. There's, a, there's quite a few of them around. It was quite a popular rig and a neat little package there too. A lot of them were used in mobile rigs. Oh yeah, uh, that was the idea. Yeah. That that made it up with a PMR8. So now I'm going to have to find a PMR8. Uh, well, but I but I also have an alternate plan. You know, but all this all this, Pete. You know, what's what is the power? Let me ask you as a member of the uh, QRP ARCI QRP QRP Hall of Fame. What does QRP stand for anyway, Pete? Was that little, those letters? What were those letters? That's that's the uh, Q code that yeah, says but running for, low for, power. Low what? 
running low power. Oh, low power, yeah. And what what's yeah. the accepted level normally? Well, they talk. Some talk five watts. Uh, some uh, talk. Uh, that's yeah. right. That's right. And, and this, all, all these these boat anchor rigs are they all QRP rigs too? No. The uh, matter of fact, I saw a YouTube video. I think it gets about sixty watts. Uh, uh, AM, uh, uh, sixty uh, watts uh, AM. Uh, uh, you, yeah. You sound like you're a bit over ten dB over the limit there, my friend. Well, yeah. Every but I mean, you can't make contact. I, mean, with I think there are, people, there are people out there maybe taking notes. Uh, I mean, you can't make contacts with QRP oh. reliably. Reliably. You're gonna get excommunicated. Man. You're gonna get, <laughs> yeah. You're gonna, They're gonna take my award. Let them gonna, take it. <laughs> no, don't say that. No, no, no. Um, anyway, my next project involves a BX40. I ordered another one. <laughs> this was Farhan. You got Farhan's a bit of a, a, a trickster. You got to keep an eye on him, because I I ordered it, and I said I want another one. I got another project in mind, and he said I'm not going to send it to you. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to send you one with an SI5351 on the board. Ooh. And I said no, don't do it. I want the old ones. <laughs> I said, so he's got, he's got, he's got a revised design. I, I don't know. I don't know if he is or not. I don't know if he was just pulling my leg, but I sent him a message back and said, no, I said, keep it real. Keep it analog. <laughs> well, you, you know, there, there may be, there may be a thread to that. Cause I sent a, I sent him uh, a little email. I was telling him that I, I couldn't see the status and he told me he was working on the SI5351. So that, that's, he said, "I'm working on that to finish that up." So well, there, there's I, I, probably I something know. in the pipe. Yeah, I, I know. I, I want it to be a standalone, off the board. Keep the board analog. Keep it real. But anyway, I got. He sent me the other one. And I got it. It came in the nice plastic box that you described. Beautiful thing, and it is all analog. The VFO is still there. But I have in mind for this. I, I have built up an SI5351 kind of uh, VFO BFO to go in a box. I put it in in the box of an old Heathkit QF1 Q multiplier. That I killed, killed to get the capacitor. Killed one of the carcasses. No, it was just there. It was there. Collateral <laughs> damage. But I, I have that in there now, and I have the nice, I got the, the 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 display and everything. So that's sort of VFO BFO to go. And what I'm thinking is that I even I only really need the VFO, but I was thinking about using this new bit X40 and converting it and make having switchable or I think I prefer kind of plug-in filters. You'd have to plug in the bandpass filter and the, the low-pass filter on the transmitter. But I was thinking it would be kind of easy to make this with plug-in filters useful on 160, 40, uh, 75, and 60 meters. Now, you know, it's an interesting problem because on 160, 40, and 75, you're good right where you are. You don't need to, you don't need to change the BFO frequency at all. Because it, those are all lower sideband bands, right? And, and the, the rig is set up for lower sideband. So on 160, you'd run the oscillator around 10.2 megahertz. You'd, on, on 40, you'd keep it at around 4 megahertz where it is now. On 75, you'd run it at about 8.2 megahertz. Now, when you get to 60, 60 meters, 5 megahertz, 5.3 megahertz, that new weird band there, there that's upper sideband. So you're going to have to do an inversion. You're going to want a sideband inversion. And the rule of thumb, I know you don't like that term, but the rule of thumb is that to determine if inversion takes place, ask yourself this one simple question. Am I subtracting the signal with the modulation from an oscillator signal without the modulation? If you are, 
If you answer that question is yes, you will get sideband inversion, right? And we want sideband inversion. So in this case, we'd run the oscillator at 17.3 megahertz, subtract from that the 5.3 megahertz signal coming in. It converts USB to LSB. Well, Bob's yeah. your uncle, again. That's what I'm thinking. Anyway, that, that might be the next project here, when the snows come and keep us trapped in the shack. All right, um, let's see. Did, oh, well, speak of... Well, hold, hold on a second here, because uh, I, I just want to pass a thought on to you. Um, what's in the FPM5? When you move the band switch, it, it switches the right banks of of bandpass filters and low-pass filters, but it also switches the Arduino. So that may be when you get when you go to a, a multiple band with a plug-in, you could do it with a instead of being plug-in, you could do it with a band switch. That's right. You could. So yeah. so so in other words, you put the band, it'll put it on 160 or put it on 80 or put it on 40 or put it on 60 meters. So yeah. that'd be cool. No, it's the same idea, yeah. But it'd be, it'd be, it'd be kind of fun. One, one switch, you know, you put your switch and everything moves. There you go. All right. All right, advanced stuff. Uh, speaking of sideband and, and, and sideband techniques, uh, Farhan posted on the R2 Pro uh, 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 website a while back a uh, program. It was Bob Hiles' podcast. So there was a segment there where they were doing it on SSB history. I put it up on the blog, so if anybody wants to take a look at it, take a look. But it was about the early days of SSB, and I think it was mostly out in California, but it might have been elsewhere, that where they organized regular sideband dinners where these guys would get together, sideband enthusiasts. This must have been like very early in the 50s. And they would get together and discuss this new technology, the new technique, everything that they were doing with sideband. And they actually came up with an award. I never knew about this. And it was like an Oscar or an Emmy or something like that. And they had the statue, the figurine. And I don't think this would be acceptable today. It would be considered kind of uh, insulting. But the, the, the award was the Sideband Susie. They have a picture of it, the size band Susie, and it's a figurine, but tellingly, uh, the, the female figure on the statue has half of her form missing. <laughs> so, single side band, get it. And there you go. Yeah, yeah, it was the 50s, yeah. things were different. But yeah. you know, I, I think that someone should, they, they should just at least once resurrect this award, and I nominate you. <laughs> so, if you get in trouble with the QRP ARCI, don't worry well, about it too much. Yeah, We're yeah, going to put you in for the sideband and Susie and organize a dinner. By, by the way, let me add a, a couple of pieces to that. First of single sideband was originally patented back in about 1915. Carson. And the, yeah, and the guy that really developed uh, single sideband for amateur use is a guy by the name of O.G. Villard, mm -hmm. Jr. Yeah. O.G. Villard, Jr. And he was up at uh, Stanford. And uh, he's also pioneered a lot of other things as well but he, he's the Stanford Radio Club that's where these dinners came yeah, about yeah, or with yeah. the guys night I think it's 1947 so uh, kind of amazing but then it took a while before Collins Art Collins says yeah let's jump on this thing but I mean there were guys building uh, sideband rigs you know the grace the pages of QSD the late late 40s uh, early 50s so yeah no, it's an amazing history it really is yeah. uh, and Farhan the, the, the link that Farhan sent to the guy who did this video was quite good he talked about the fellow back in 1915 Carson who came up with the theory looked at it realized you only needed one sideband the first thing that they could develop really pretty easily was the was basically the, the balanced mixer the balanced modulator that got rid of the carrier but they still had 
the two sidebands. So they basically had double sideband. But they were operating at very, very low frequencies. They were, you know, this, these were the, the really low, 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 below 160 in frequency, right? So the way they got rid of the other sideband was at the antenna tuner. Can you imagine? The, 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 the bandwidth of these signals was so large, so wide, and the frequency was so low, and the Q of the antenna tuners was high enough so that they would just tune the set up the antenna tuner so that the upper sideband would go to the antenna, but the lower sideband would be knocked out. So they didn't have crystal filters yet, and so there you had it. They were doing it with the antenna tuner, which I found really interesting. Well, a lot of that work was done by Bell Labs yeah. because they wanted to use reduce the frequency spectrum to carry more signals. I mean, and a lot of it, it was, was on, really, on, 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 on on actual on telephone lines. On, on yeah, telephone, telephone lines. lines. Yeah, yeah. 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 Interesting stuff. Hey, listen, I want to give you credit. You, you've added another, yet another term to the homebrew lexicon. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to alert our, 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 our lexicographer Steve out there. Al fresco. You know, we, we always describe how we, how much we like the rigs when they're not in the box yet. They're spread out on the, on the table. There are a bunch of boards held together with clip leads and little pieces of RG174. And yet you somehow fire it up and, you always managed to work New Zealand or something like that. Well, you were the one who described this. The rigs in this condition are al fresco. Fresco. The open. Out yeah. the open. Um, Tim Walford. So I, I really like that. Tim Tim Walford in his latest issue of Hot Iron, which is quite good. If you don't subscribe to it, send Tim an email. I've got links up on the Solder Smoke Pod, uh, Solder Smoke Blog. But he started referring in his uh, latest edition to uh, black box rigs. You know, and he's talking about the ICOMs, Yesus, the Kenwoods. You know, we don't want to put anybody down, but it's it's a different kind of ham radio. They, you know, guys used to describe those rigs as rice boxes. I never liked that. That's kind of unfriendly. It's kind of harsh to you know our Japanese and I guess now Chinese uh, fellow radio amateurs. And the biggest holder of the U.S. debt now is the Japanese. Yeah, it was kind of kind of harsh and pejorative. But I think black box rigs captures it quite nicely because oh, yeah. because there's too many. They are black boxes. They're a bit of a mystery to what for for, for most owners, and, and they're filled with other little black boxes that are mysteries too. So thanks, Tim. I think for coming up with an appropriate uh, phrase there. HB to HB contacts. Well, wait a minute. Don't move off that too quick. Why do you think we have Giuliano Blue? Hmm. So, so they're not called black box rigs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. You, get away. <laughs> you go. They're blue. <laughs> They're blue, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's been a number of HB to HB contacts. I got on one day, and I had like I, – I got it up on the blog. It was like a historic day. I got up on 40 meters, and one after the other, I was talking to guys who were running either homebrew rigs or you run into – I think more frequently on sideband, you run into guys who are running a commercial rig, uh, perhaps a black box rig, but they're doing it with a homebrew amplifier. And I, I find that almost as exciting as running into somebody with a homebrew transceiver. I know you've had some of similar experiences out there. Pete, you've had some good HB to HB contacts too. One in particular. I had an HB to HB contact with Jeff Dam, WA7MLH. And for those of you who have a copy of the Solid State Design for the Radio Amateur, a lot of those circuits were built by Jeff. He's the Jeff wizard. He's the wizard. And they had you beautifully know, ugly rigs that made us all feel yeah, better about the stuff we were building. Yeah, yeah. And he was running a 40-watt homebrew rig up in Montana. 
and and it was a battery powered uh, fed by solar panels. Evidently, it's a remote location. It's a, either a vacation home or whatever. And this was, uh, man, I, I was just really exciting to uh, to be able to talk to Jeff. And he called me. Oh, <laughs> you know, we, no, we, that's we, it. Yeah, the now, radio I was, gods I have be, spoken. That's I it. was running the, the FPM five at seven hundred watts, so there was, <laughs> there was a little signal advantage here. But I mean, that was really exciting to uh, be able to talk. And someday you can look up the history of Jeff. There's a company called Triquint, uh, which was later bought by Watkins Johnson. They make uh, monolithic uh, uh, integrated circuits, microwave monolithic integrated circuits. He was one or, one of the founders of that company. So you're talking to a guy that no, not only knows how to do homebrew, but a guy that on the other end developing devices. So kind of amazing. Man, I got on one night and I ran into it. It was like a sequence of guys. I talked to Armand, the BA1 UQO, uh, who's waiting for his BIDX. And then I talked to Dino KL0S down there in, in, uh, in the Tidewater area of Virginia. And he's a, a, a fantastic home brewer and a long time listener to Solder Smoke. Dino, I'm, I'm working on your QSL card, buddy. I'm, I want a homebrew one. I'm going to send you a homebrew card. But I guess, Pete, that brings us to the mailbox. Yeah. I got a lot. We got to go through it. We're already in overtime. So I'm going to go through this kind of fast, but interrupt if you, if you. Okay. Sure. All right. Go. Dino, uh, KL0S, uh, he, he heard me comment about or on the blog about how we're into uh, electrostatic sparks, uh, season here. And I talked about how I was taping bits of, uh, electrostatic protection plastic over LCD dials. And he said, no, no, no. He said, get some, get some plants for the shack. And you could also get like a glass of water, put it on top of the, the heater, and that'll increase the humidity levels in the shack. I've tried it. It seems to be helping. Thanks for that, Dino. Uh, Peter Parker, VK3YE, the guru down there on Melbourne Beach in Australia, has done a video, Pete, on the BIDX40. Wow. Ooh, cool. Yeah, I, and it, it's really nice, but he talks about, the, about that, that pot that we mentioned before in the final. And he made the same assumption that I did, that it was for setting the bias. And, and really interesting that Peter and I fell into the same trap there. But I really liked his, uh, his BIDX40 video. Check it out. Martin, uh, concerned about ropes and whips. We've already discussed that. Uh, Jim, AB3CV alerted me to the very non-ugly breadboard work of Eric NO3M. We've covered Eric's work before, but uh, uh, Jim alerted me to that. I looked at uh, Eric's website, he has built an amazing 1934 single signal, signal superhead receiver. I've got pictures of it up on the blog. Check it out. Uh, Tim Sutton, the guy who sent us the, the boxes, the, the big aluminum boxes that are now being used here for a couple of receivers, is working on homebrew antennas, I think for, for 220 or 440 and 40 meters. Right. Really nice, nice work. Thanks for sending us that, Tim. Uh, Kent, KB9MAC. I met up with him a couple times on the QRP calling frequency on sideband. Who knew? 7.285 megahertz. Guys here on the East Coast have been meeting there around 1930 East Coast time. Uh, and I got on there a few times that I, I worked with Kent. I talked to Kent. also talked to W3TTT. He also sent me a QSL card. Don't worry, I'm going to get one back as soon as I get the homebrew QSL thing going. But it was good to meet them there, and I think we should try to do more of these kind of get-togethers on 40 with the BIDX-40s. Uh, you mentioned Steve, N8NM. He picked up a VFO at a ham fest. looked like a homebrew thing, a neat little box with a wonderful little dial on it, all kinds of knobs and connectors off the back. And you know, he, I think he shares your enthusiasm for uh, digital synthesis, Pete. So 
he, he was thinking about turning this into some sort of plaything for his grandkids. And I said, no! That is a potential analog VFO for a bit X40. You, you know what I think it was? What? I think it was a analog VFO for a 23-channel CB transceiver. And the reason is the, the dial markings went from 2 to 23. Yeah. And he, he said he looked at it, and he said, I think you're right, because he, he checked the frequencies. He said, yeah, some, someone came up instead of the crystallized channels, came up with a VFO that you could move to, move to the channels of 23-channel CV. It can be changed. It can be converted. It can be saved. It can be yeah. redeemed. It can be brought into and made into a, a true piece of amateur radio equipment. Steve, don't turn that thing into a play kid thing for the grandkids. Turn it into a, a VFO for a bit X. Uh, here, a really interesting email we got with potential significance technologically for the radio art. Todd, K7TFC, wrote to us saying that uh, Jason, NT7S, has modified the library for the SI5351, his library that many of us are using, and it can now support the, the setting of a phase difference between the clocks. Now, the important thing is that you could set the clocks at the same frequency and have one 90 degrees off or in quadrature. This opens the potential for using the SI5351 in IQ receivers or binaural receivers, basically phasing receivers, in a way that we haven't been able to do before. So that's really exciting. That'd be, that'd be interesting. I haven't, we haven't checked it out yet, but I hope, I hope it works because that would be really, really good. You, you realize, of course, with the upper frequency limit of the SI-5351, that puts you right through six meters? Wow, I know. And you wouldn't have to worry about divide by four or anything like that. You know, so that's, that's, that, that, would, be, that would be really cool. Um, Steve, N8NM, again, looking at, he, he wrote to you, and you, you and he were discussing the Chinese eBay 45-watt linear amplifier kit. Seems to have some potential. Some of the parts seem kind of... Funny. Flaky, but uh, <laughs> but the, the architecture seems good, so if you replace some of the parts, it might be a way to go. QRO. Is there a QRO Hall of Fame? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm buying you, for the award. You may find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm buying for the award. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I already mentioned Farhan's uh, video and, and Carson and the, the sidebands and the antenna tuner. That was really great. Ethan, KB8OJH wrote and told me about a different kind of NAC, software NAC. And I, I agree with him. He said, you know, there's a, there's radio NAC and then there's software NAC. And some people have it and some people don't. I don't have the software NAC. I, I, I don't either. But I, I think mean, he's really right. There's a certain kind of um, kind of mind or a certain kind of brain that really is good at, you know, just churning out those algorithms and converting them into code and writing good code. I was reminded as a there's a new book out by Tracy Kidder, the guy who wrote Soul in the New Machine uh, and many other good books. But he wrote Truckload of Money, and it's about a guy who who made a lot of money doing software up in Boston. And there's several chapters in there where he really gets into how this guy's uh, think thought process works and why it is that some people are so good at just churning out code and others of us are not. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, Eric. There's, uh, Ethan, there's a... There's a knack there. Uh, Peter VK2EMU has sent in a couple of really good suggestions about edits for the Solder Smoke book. Thanks for that. And from far off South Africa, Wouter ZS1KE, he was looking back at old Solder Smoke episodes and he saw the part where I was struggling with my uh, 
herring aid five receiver and when I, where I had wound the, the, the coil incorrectly oh, dial yeah. sense. He, and he was speculating that maybe I was left-handed because he said he's noticed that some people who are left-handed, when they wind a coil, will wind it in the opposite direction that a right-handed person would. I hadn't thought about that. When you think, see, I'm doing it. See that? Yeah. See that? Yeah. Yeah. But he was speculating. He said, "Might you have been? Are you a left-handed person? That might explain the problem." No, that, that I guess that could explain it. But in my case, it was just, I guess, bad luck <laughs> right. and a, a less than completely explicit magazine article, and and. Plus, I was 17. Um, let's see. But thanks for that, Wouter. And then from, um, from, here's a guy, a real homebrew hero, Pete, AC7ZL, HP Friedrichs. He's the guy who wrote Voice of the Crystals and making, making your own, you know, radio parts really good. He has produced a key made from parts from a discarded hard disk. Man, there's a project that's near and dear to my heart. Talk about from digital to analog. I, I, I wanted to share with you, I have a beautiful, key that was made by my son the, the mechanical engineer and it's all parts from discarded hard disk and there's some bearings in there <laughs> that are really really or high precision bearings that are really absolutely amazing i'll have to dig dig it out of the box and take, take a picture, picture right? up there. Yeah. yeah that's good yeah right. well thanks pete for sending us that and then george k8vu uh a fellow who helped out with the editing of the solder smoke book thanks very much again for that george but uh He's now recapping a Drake 2B and was asking some questions about how to go about it. I hope I, I sent him some links. I hope that helps. A lot of, a lot of good stuff on the internet about that. Frank, a KM4AXA working on an antenna tuner. Um, and then, uh, Tom Gallagher, the, uh, executive, pre- the, 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 the chief executive officer of the AWRL wrote us. He's got a nice, uh, editorial in the January issue of QST that talks about home brewing and the place of makers. In our society. Thanks for that, Tom. Always appreciate the homebrew support. Pete, that brings us to the end of this week. How, how did we do it? We, we did it in about one hour and 20 minutes. I mean, we didn't talk a lot. God, we talked a lot, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it's the holiday season, and uh, I'm so glad we got a chance to get one in before the end of 2016. I want to wish everybody in the uh, Solder Smoke podcast land the very, very best of the holiday season. And I hope your stocking gets filled with all kinds of electronic goodies. Solder. Solder. Deoxit. Deoxit, yes. Good stuff. Yeah, echo that. You mentioned cable ties. you got to have cable ties. There's so many things. I mean, there's just so many things. We should come up with a list of stocking stuffers for radio amateur homebrewers. Well, you know, I'm I'm at real risk here. There's the local Radio Shack is going out of business. Oh, sad day. Not, yeah, it's not the Radio Shack's going out of business. The local one is just not the foot traffic, and they got a lot of the parts and components marked thirty percent, thirty five percent down. So I mean, I'm, I'm going to whiz by there today, and I'm looking for things like cable ties, solder. <laughs> you know. Oh man, you, you get, get those parts. Get those parts. Yeah, you know, th- 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 those are two other things on my list that I'm going to look for. Most of the other stuff I pass, but man. those two, that, uh, I got to get that. A buddy of mine who wants to remain anonymous sent me a box with some really great stuff in it. I could use his first name. Thanks, Jim. You know who you are. Thanks. Keeping the keeping the projects going. Pete, happy birthday. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Same to you and your family there, Bill. And happy happy holidays to all of our listeners around the world. And, uh, you know, 7-3 from Northern Virginia. 7-3 from the left coast. Ooh, that's awesome. 
Solder Smoke podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!